You're listening to an ACR 2021 podcast, a compilation of reports, interviews, perspectives, and panel discussions that feature the Room Now faculty and noted experts. Hope you enjoy. Hi, I have, this is Dr. Catherine Dow. I have as my guest today's experts on reproductive health in rheumatic diseases, Dr. Jill Bayan and Dr. Bonnie Burmis. Thank you both so much for being here with me today. Thank you for having us. Thank you. So what inspired you to go into the field of lupus and pregnancy? I know, Bonnie, you have such an interesting story, and I'm sure that uh, Jill does too. Bonnie, ahead, do you want to start? Yeah. I'll refer to you. <laughs> so um, I actually, when I was doing my uh, rheumatology fellowship, thought I was going to be a bench scientist and was working in a lab at the NIH. And the lab um, did work on cellular immunology of lupus and also HIV and transplant immunology. And I became interested in this sort of immunology of pregnancy and, and how that would then go further and impact our rheumatic diseases, that sort of double whammy or that intersection. So actually when I, when I moved back up to Boston and decided to become a clinician, I decided that, that that area was so interesting to me that I wanted to focus on it. And one of the things, and I suspect Jill will, will echo this, when we started in this area, most rheumatologists were very uncomfortable caring for patients who had rheumatic diseases during pregnancy. They didn't want anything to do with it. They didn't want to prescribe medicine. And I loved it. I mean, I loved caring for patients. I loved helping them through a pregnancy. And early on in my career, the number of women with lupus who came in who said to me, I was told I can never get pregnant. I should never get pregnant was astounding. And one of my first cases that I cared for a woman who um, was on azathioprine and was told by somebody to terminate the pregnancy. That, that was the level of misinformation. And um, I know that Jill in particular has done so much for so many women who've gotten pregnant. And I, I suspect she will echo my sentiments. There is just nothing more joyful than a person who has wanted to pursue pregnancy and you've held their hand or helped them hopefully during the pregnancy and they come back to your office and, you know, it's a gift, so. And there are two of them. And there are two <laughs> of them. And there are two of them or three. Yeah, sometimes they're great. <laughs> I think Bonnie has said it all. I'm not sure I can add very much to what she has said. I had sort of an opposite route. I thought I was going to be a clinician, and I never dreamed that I would enjoy the laboratory. I started working on white blood cells in the laboratory with my mentor, Gerald Weissman, moved to Winchester's lab, and a patient came along who, and I, I really didn't see very many patients, who has had lupus and she had anti-law antibodies, not Rho, that's not really important to the story, but I rarely go on vacations. And I remember during my one and only ski vacation, she called me and she said, oh my God, my baby has a slow heart rate. What in the world do you think this could be? And all I can say is that launched a career of translational research for the next 30 years. And a lot of it was actually going back to the bench, a little bit opposite from Bonnie. But I also agree with her, it's an amazingly exciting field. And it's a field where people really care. They really want your help. And there's so much at stake. And for all, you know, it's sort of like for all the rejections or the misses, the fetal deaths, the terrible things, the joy of having it hit one time, even if it's only one time, it's absolutely immeasurable. There's nothing more to say about that. And 
I think Bonnie has organized so much information. Um, I, I could just give an example that she's written about hydroxychloroquine in a letter to the editor when there were some issues that were raised. And I actually leave that letter, it's right pasted in my office so I can constantly refer to it. I, I am I, so honored, Jill, I have to say. No, I'm not kidding you. So all <laughs> I'm saying is that, um, you know, people who care about this, Bonnie and I are one of many people, and I'm sure we could give you many names. I think we're kind of a unique group. And it just, this stuff really means a lot to us. And we, and we live and breathe it, you know, we're on call like 24 seven. Oh, absolutely. And you both worked on the ACR reproductive health guidelines. And it's such a major feat. And I think everyone, who's involved in taking care of a lupus patient should really read the document. And to me, this is the gynecologist, the internist, family medicine doctor, nephrologist. So how are you disseminating this material um, to other specialties? Want to answer that? Sure, I mean, I think what happens, and I, I know Jill and her, her group quite well, when you work in this field, you've already established those relationships. We We, I think if you do lupus in general, like you, you have to have in your back pocket your list of your um, people in other disciplines that you refer to. So one of the things that I've done since um, I came down here is I actually sit in the maternal fetal medicine clinic on Monday afternoons. And I'm really, I will see patients, but more than anything, I'm a resource for the fellows, the residents, the attendings. For what we learned, I mean, and Jill will speak. She's very, we were both very involved with the guidelines, and you, we all learned so much about the existing literature. This was a educational experience for us, even though we've been doing it for a while. We learned so much, and so these questions come up. Questions are also, as you know, Kat um, and Jill, they're very nuanced and very, very idiosyncratic to a patient. So, talking about cases, talking about what you do is I think the best way to disseminate the information. There were some lovely sessions at the ACR meeting, a study group and um, that Lisa Samaritano, who's a big leader in this field led. And then she and um, Dr. Talabi did a beautiful session on applying the uh, guidelines to real world situations. And I think that was enormously successful venue for doing this. The ACR so, has been great at promoting it. I mean, I just want to say that they're very good at promoting it. They've often had state-of-the-art lectures, which are invited by you know one of five or six of us. And I think that's really been an excellent venue. Um, plus, you know, we reference it all the time when we're writing papers. And these are the kinds of things that I talk about, put it even in epic notes. I mean, I've actually found myself writing Samaritano A and R, you know, or you know, ARD, because the beauty of it, it was actually almost like published twice. It's in two journals, a European journal, and it's in our American journal, our two top rheumatology journals. So it goes in a lot of my epic notes just as a referral source. I, I look at it constantly because I honestly cannot remember all of the things that we said, and it's extremely helpful. The other thing that I find fascinating is that, you know, some of us who are interested in the field probably now six, seven years ago suggested a study group. And our first ACR study group, we were ecstatic because we got maybe 50 people and you know, people thought we were gonna get no one. I am couldn't even log on because I didn't realize I had a pre-register and had to wait 
bumped from the wait list. There were 500 people logged on and a wait list. That just goes to show you how much growing interest this is. And I think our younger colleagues and trainees really want to be able to deal with this. They want to be able to help their patients. And that's great. I mean, look, lupus is a disease of women of childbearing age. Exactly. Oh, so I think it's inherent in what we do, right? Yes. And we're forced, not forced. I think we gladly, you know, move into it that this is what you want to do. And yes. it's a really common, common concern. I, I would say for pretty much every patient that I see is brought up, whether it's birth control. I mean, obviously there's the, the pre part of, of pregnancy, which is really important. There's the post part of pregnancy that's really important. It's, it's everywhere. I mean, and then, you know, there's even menopause that we have to deal with. So reproductive issues and women's health gynecologically and otherwise are just very intrinsic to management of lupus, which is interesting because I'm not really knowing that much about bones. So we can have this whole conversation talk about bones, right? But it's, it's an extra piece that some of us have kind of become a little like mini gynecologists and mini MFMs. And like Bonnie said, and I don't actually attend their clinics, but I'm always screaming about delivery and this and that. We have joint meetings actually between rheumatology and MFM every two months, and we present cases and go over the literature. So that's kind of how we integrate. That's actually very helpful for multiple institutions to do. I, I think that's yeah. essential. Now, there are two questions that came up at the ACR meeting. And, you know, I was looking at the ACR guidelines, I looked at the ULAR guidelines, and I did a literature search. And really, there's no answer, correct answer, in my opinion, to these two questions. The first one is hydroxychloroquine dosing during pregnancy. Megan Close uses 400 milligrams a day throughout all of the pregnancy, whereas Lisa Samarantano uses a weight-based dosing. What do you all use? Well, I do you want to answer first, because I actually... Right, so I think it's a, there are really two levels to this question. I tend to do what Lisa does, and I just keep patients on the dose I have them. But I think one of the, the sort of subtext of this is, and, and Jill really is knowledgeable about this. Oh, no. We don't know about how dosing translates into blood levels or serum levels. That's number one. We're not all routinely measuring them. So we don't know. And moreover, at least my read of the literature, and please correct me if I'm wrong, is there isn't even really clear literature on what's the dose you need to get to prevent disease flares. And I, I think that's really important information that we're going to start seeing because many people are now very interested in measuring levels. So I don't think there's a right or wrong whether you do 400 milligrams a day of weight-based dosing. Jill's done some lovely work with, with measuring serum levels. I think the more we start met, you incorporating that into practice and understand what's the level you need to be at so you prevent a flare, or is there a level, or is it idiosyncratic, I think we'll have better information. Jill? Bonnie's 100% right in everything she said, but I there is a paper that's under review, actually, in our journal, Lupus Science and Medicine, not that I'm trying to plug that, but it goes over you know, pregnancy, physiology, and levels. And it made a statement about adjustment. And I actually called Lisa Samaritano, and there's no evidence about adjusting during pregnancy at this point. We know there's hemodilution because there's increased plasma volume, but we don't know. But there's also, not only do we not know what the level is in a non-pregnant patient that we need to achieve, but we don't have any idea whether that really correlates with flare or not. People have tried to get you to a thousand nanogram per ml. Right. And then 
is that really right? People flare or they don't. And, I, and in this particular paper, they were talking about non-compliance at less than levels of 100. I've used levels of 200. So what does that mean? And then in my case, or I should say my case, but we're treating two people. Sometimes we're treating the mother to prevent flare. And sometimes I, I think we're treating anti-Rho positive women to maybe avoid a problem in the baby. So what's the level that this fetus sees? I have really very little clue because of course we did not do levels during pregnancy, but we did do cord blood levels. And it was very interesting that cord blood levels paralleled very much the mother's levels. But that's, you know, at the end of the pregnancy, who knows what is happening in the middle. And I think unknown. Bottom line, I do exactly what Bonnie did. I keep patients on the same dose. Now, if it's only for consideration of prevention of heart block, the only reason I make it 400 is that happened to be what we did in the one study that we actually did prospectively. So, but there's no clear reason for why we did what we did. We just wanted to keep it uniform. And then the other question that circulated around was methotrexate in breastfeeding, because there was recent data from mother to baby showing very little goes into breast milk. Are you permitting your women who have been, you know, pre-pregnancy on methotrexate doing great to continue it during lactation? I don't have an answer to that. Maybe Bonnie, I really yeah, so I saw it, the question. I didn't really know. It's that. it's very it's near and dear to my heart because when we did the guidelines, we were often often given little assignments of our own little thing to look right. up. And so, I looked at this issue of methotrexate and breastfeeding. And from my recollection of the guidelines, the data even several years back has shown very little transmission into breast milk. Our hands were tied for the following reasons. The, there are rec it's a very circular thing. There's recommendations to avoid, and, and this is even in LACMED, to avoid methotrexate in breastfeeding. But why? It's really based on data on um, neonates who were receiving very high doses of methotrexate for um, CNS tumors. Okay, and that that dose of the methotrexate or for tumors in general, that dose of the methotrexate accumulated in the neurologic system. So for that reason, and it's really circular, if you try and look like this one's uh -huh. quoting this one, who's quoting this one, who's quoting this one, but no one's really telling you data, that the American College, American, uh, whatever, the American College of Pediatrics recommends avoiding breastfeeding. I was recently at, at the uh, reproductive rheumatology meetings that are international, and I was called on this by the Europeans because they made the point, hey, none of this is getting into breast milk. Why did you make those recommendations? So we're in a really a, a quagmire, right? Because, you know, we've done this for years and said absolutely not. So that was a very long-winded answer. But I would say to my patients, if you really know methotrexate is your great is your best drug, and you're planning on nursing, the data suggests that very, very, very little, if you know, get into breast milk and will arrive at the fetus. But you have to understand that the this addition of the guidelines, this is what the American Academy of Pediatrics says, it's a very low risk thing. So it's not allowed, you know, it's a kind of a conversation. Um, what, what you do find is, and you know this, Kat, because you also take care of a lot of pregnant patients with rheumatic diseases, People are very wary of doing anything when they're either trying to get pregnant or breastfeeding. So I would say it's the rare patient who's going to say, "Yippee, get me started back on my methotrexate." They're most likely going to ask for another drug. But if someone said, "I'm comfortable with it," I would say, "Fine, it's reasonable." Yeah, it's my patients who 
you know, have already delivered, they go into a postpartum flare and it's the arthritis part of it. And they were so well controlled with methotrexate plus whatever else they were on. And it's so hard to get them, you no, know, so under that, control. By the way, I want to pick up on that comment. It's, it's interesting to me because I don't see too many postpartum flares that require treatment or much of an adjustment. So it is an interesting statement that you make that during pregnancy, they're doing fine, not on methotrexate, right? By definition, and I'm hoping that they're not on steroids or anything else that you happen to use, but let's say not. And then you've made a comment about postpartum flare. That's kind of interesting, right? Just in and of itself, now all of a sudden, while they were doing well in pregnancy, now they feel a need that their arthritis is back and all that. That's just even of itself a kind of an interesting observation. It, it, there's a lot common. of, sorry, there's a lot of data and it's really, it is very interesting. And one of the things, I mean, it, it's more often, I think, no matter what the literature says, I think you more right. frequently see this in inflammatory arthritis, like rheumatoid arthritis, this postpartum right. flare, exactly. right? Yes. And if you think about it towards the end of pregnancy, what, this is why um, infections in the last trimester end up producing, you know, preterm premature rupture of the membranes and labor is because levels of TNF alpha block, TNF alpha go up at the end of pregnancy. So you can imagine that you have people who the level's gone down, so they're doing okay on minimal meds and they deliver, the level goes up and they flare. And I think there's, the immunology of this is so interesting. I mean, I, you know, the little I know, it's just like very intriguing. Well, it's true. And I think there's hormonal influence too. You got estrogen goes up. And I once wrote a paper 35 years ago, my first paper in ANR, the estrogens were actually anti-inflammatory, but at any rate, um, effect on neutrophils. But there are obviously glucocorticoids go up. So that's something that we all acknowledge and we don't have to come up with some fancy mechanism. And then that kind of gets wiped out a little bit. So I'm sure there's a lot of reasons for this. It's just, I haven't observed that that much, that my patients suddenly have a lot of arthritis when they were doing fine during pregnancy. I haven't seen that very often. So I'm going to close out with uh, one final question. Mentorship. What advice do you give to, in order to get more rheumatologists and trainees interested in this field? Do it, do it, do it. I mean, I think that, I don't know, in our clinic, when a patient comes in who's pregnant, everyone can see my face become so enthusiastic. I mm -hmm. drop what I'm doing. I won't listen to anything else. And I give it much too much attention. Maybe that's just, you know, my influence, but I think Bonnie and others have excited people uh, in training enough to want to go do this. And I do think many people are very enthusiastic. Yeah, I'd say it, generationally it has changed. The, actually, the best piece of mentoring advice I ever got was from Mike Lockshins when we overlapped at the NIH because I was going back to clinical work mm -hmm. after being in the lab. And I had started to get really interested in this. I was sitting in clinic with him and, you know, precept or whatever, shadowing him and interested. He gave me the sex, single best piece of advice. And, and I think this, it doesn't matter what you want to do is pregnancy and rheumatic disease. It doesn't want to matter if you want to be a lupologist or rheumatoid arthritis expert. He goes, contact, go, go to the MFM people, go to their conferences, hang out with them, tell them you want to take care of your patients. He goes, eventually you will be an expert because people will send you patients. There is this funny thing where you have to sort of you're not really an expert yet, but you want to be. So you sort of have to say you're an expert or interested in something, but then you get the patients and you do gain expertise. So, Absolutely. And I have one more thing to add. So getting um, our trainees involved and Bonnie, you're incredible. You're 
um, allowing me to help you write a paper. And I would say that got me even in, more interested in this pregnancy because you know, there's so much data that we don't have and we're basing these guidelines on. And so I think if we can get our trainees involved, getting people more excited about this, like what Dr. Bayon said, uh, it's, it's an incredible field and it's growing. So thank you so much, ladies, for, for allowing me to pick your brains and for being here with me. This is Dr. Catherine Dow reporting for Room Now. Thank you so much. Have a thank great you for one. having us. Thank you.